This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a citadel of civility in a very uncivil world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. My wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy, nurse practitioner extraordinaire and purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net, is hard at work in our mystical warehouse of medical mystery. So it's just me today. On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, but you're also going to get the unconventional medical wisdom. And if you're brave enough to keep listening, the unhinged rants of an old geezer who lives in the old fridge in the garage. But hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for tough times. But to hear all this great information, first got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. Things are just peachy keen out there, aren't they? Well, but I've got one question for you, and that is, who's the medic going to be if some disaster knocks all the hospitals out of commission and a family member is sick or injured? Who's going to step up to the plate? Don't look at me. I'm just a piano player. Surprise, surprise. It is you. So you better get off your duff and learn some stuff. Maybe get some medical supplies. We know where you can get some at store.doomandbloom.net. Before we get started, I just want to mention that the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon over more than 2,000 reviews and is still number one in all its categories. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, check the black and white version out at Amazon or the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a spiral bound version on our website as well. Check them out at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Hey, you know, people in off-grid settings are often called upon to perform activities to which they're not accustomed. In daily survival, the inexperienced are going to have mishaps that lead to injury. In situations where sanitation is questionable, I mean, these injuries can carry a risk of infection, especially in unsanitary conditions. And one of these infections is known as cellulitis. The term cellulitis commonly is used to indicate an inflammation of the skin and soft tissues, usually from an acute infection. Once under the skin, subcutaneous fat, muscle layers, nerves, and blood vessels may become involved. Now, why does cellulitis occur? When the skin is breached, various microbes can invade and cause damage. Inflammation in soft tissues, known as cellulitis, may develop when bacteria enter through a crack or break in the skin. Fortunately, infections from minor wounds are relatively easy to treat today due to the availability of antibiotics, but without them, any bacteria may become life-threatening especially if it enters and multiplies into circulation, a condition known as septicemia. Cellulitis may be easy to deal with in normal times with a short course of antibiotics, but it's going to be an epidemic in the aftermath of a major disaster. This is not because it's contagious. Unless there's an open wound or an exchange of bodily fluids involved, caregivers can treat a victim very, very safely but simply because there are going to be so many opportunities to get these minor infections through minor injuries. Without antibiotics, infections can spread to lymph nodes and the bloodstream, rapidly becoming life-threatening. The end result might infect the entire body, well, something we refer to as sepsis. Once sepsis occurs, inflammation of deep structures like the spinal cord, something we call meningitis, or bone marrow, something we call osteomyelitis, can further complicate the situation. In the past, sepsis was usually fatal. Even today, it's certainly life-threatening. The bacteria that cause cellulitis are on your skin right now. Normal inhabitants of the surface of your skin include things like staph and group A strep. 
They do no harm until the skin is broken and then they enter deeper tissues where they don't belong. Points of entry include dry flaky skin or swollen skin like athlete's foots or other irritations as well as through things that are cuts like surgical sites, puncture wounds, skin ulcers, things like that. In recent years, a resistant bacterium known as MRSA, M-R-S-A, that's methicillin-resistant staph aureus, has arisen which causes cellulitis that's resistant to the usual antibiotics. And so this has been quite a challenge even in normal times. As an aside, by the way, cellulitis has nothing to do with the dimpling on the skin called cellulite. The suffix itis simply means inflammation. So cellulitis simply means inflammation of the cells. Now, in a survival setting, anyone can get cellulitis. In normal times, however, several factors do increase the risk. Of course, injury, as I mentioned before, any cut, fracture, burn, scrape, things like that, gives bacteria an entry point. But if you have a weakened immune system, that may do it too. Conditions that weaken the immune system, like diabetes, leukemia, HIV, AIDS, those all increase the risk of infection. Certain medications can also weaken the immune system. Anti-rejection drugs in transplant patients are an example. People with skin conditions like atopic dermatitis, eczema, athlete's foot shingles, they cause breaks in the skin as well, which give bacteria an entry point. Even if the condition doesn't break the skin, scratching it can oftentimes lead to a break in the skin that causes the ability of a bacteria to get in there. Long-term swelling of the arms and legs can do it too. We call that lymphedema, and that occurs sometimes after surgery to treat things like breast cancer. Of course, people who have had a history of cellulitis before seem to have a tendency to get it again. It's hard to say whether this is because things that they're doing or whether it's just a natural tendency. Being overweight also seems to do it too. Excess weight increases the risk of developing cellulitis from a statistical standpoint. Now, let's talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms of cellulitis. You need to be able to recognize this very, very common issue that will be confronting you in survival settings. The signs and symptoms of cellulitis have to be recognized very early, and they include discomfort in the area of infection, a common first sign, heat in the area of infection compared to non-affected areas, redness, usually spreading towards the torso if if it's getting worse, swelling in the area of infection, often appearing shiny, causing a sensation of tightness, Drainage of pus or cloudy fluid from the area of the infection, foul odor coming from the area of infection, and then people can have some general symptoms like general ill feeling, we call that malaise, uh, fatigue, fever and chills, muscle aches, and they could actually have, although this is less common, joint stiffness caused by swelling of the tissue over a particular joint. Now you're going to most often see cellulitis in an extremity, such as a leg, especially the lower leg. In these cases, it's helpful to keep the limb elevated. Other strategies include warm or cool compresses or soaks to the affected area and the use of ibuprofen or acetaminophen, that's Advil or Tylenol or Motrin or Tylenol. These are used to decrease pain, discomfort, and fever. If the wound is open or weeping fluid or pus, cover it with a nonstick dressing. Otherwise, try to avoid touching the area. Some practitioners recommend compression dressings to keep down swelling. If you choose this option, be careful to avoid wrapping too tightly as it could impede circulation. To follow the progress of healing, use a felt tip marker to outline the borders of the red warm areas associated with the cellulitis. If the redness proceeds over time, progress is being made towards healing. Concern increases if the redness breaks through those borders, although it may do that in the first day before it starts healing. Although the body can sometimes remove cellulitis and resolve it on its own, 
A significant case is often given treatment, which includes the use of antibiotics, as I mentioned earlier. These can be topical, oral, or intravenous. It should be noted that topical therapy with antibiotic creams helps more to prevent infection than to cure it. High fever, spreading redness, warmth, pain, and swelling. These are signs that you're dealing with a severe case. In normal times, intravenous antibiotics are indicated. You're going to be lacking this as the survival medic, but you can try a combination of oral antibiotics. As most cases of cellulitis are caused by bacteria in the strep family, group A strep, drugs in the penicillin, erythromycin, or cephalosporin family of drugs are usually pretty effective. Given for about 7 to 14 days, it should eliminate the infection. Amoxicillin, amoxicillin with clavulanic acid, that's called augmentin in the States, and ampicillin are particularly popular. But penicillin is still used by some, especially dental practitioners. Azithromycin, clindamycin, doxycycline, and metronidazole are options for those who are allergic to penicillins. Uh, MRSA cellulitis can be treated with clindamycin and the sulfa drug combination of sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim, that's SMX-TMP. Whatever antibiotic is used, it's important to complete the full course of therapy to assure eradication of the offending germ. Now, you might ask how is amoxicillin with clavulanic acid, augmentin, different from regular amoxicillin? Well, augmentin actually can treat similar infections to amoxicillin, but it also treats some other infections that may have developed antibiotic resistance against it, such as persistent ear infections. Some adult dosing examples that you might be interested in knowing, penicillin, amoxicillin, cephalexin, or ampicillin, all about the same, 250 to 500 milligrams orally four times a day for seven to 14 days. Amoxicillin, by the way, also, I think augmentin also comes in 875 milligrams, which you can take three times a day. Augmentin is usually a seven to 10 day course. Uh, Azithromycin, that's 500 milligrams once on day one, followed by 250 milligrams a day on day two to five. This is a very simple treatment that's very popular. It's known as a Z-Pack. You may have heard of that. Clindamycin, 150 to 300 milligrams, three times a day for seven to 10 days. Sulfa drugs, twice a day for 7 to 10 days. That's SMX-TMX. Doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for 7 to 10 days. These are just a few possible examples. It should be noted that variations on dosing and duration of therapy vary from infection to infection. At present, by the way, you can still get these antibiotics, or at least most of them, on online sites like fishmoxfishflex.com and others. For more information on exactly how to use them, you might consider a copy of my book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Diseases, Layman's Guide. We also have, of course, a lot of free articles on the website that talk about it. There are some resistant infections like MRSA. These are going to need combination therapy. I think I've mentioned that before. Sulfa drugs and cephalexin, that's something that you can use. And there are a number of other combinations that are thought to be effective. As with all medications, adverse effects and allergic reactions may occur. So it's important for you to know that. The longer the therapy and the higher the dose, the more likelihood that you're going to experience these. Announcer prevention, of course, is worth a pound of cure. Using appropriate hand and foot protection, eyewear, that's going to prevent a lot of injuries, especially among the inexperienced performing activities of daily survival. If an injury occurs, stop what you're doing. Immediately wash the wound with soap and water or an antiseptic like povidone iodine, that's betadine, or chlorhexidine, that's hippoclens. By the way, from a personal standpoint, I failed to do this after I injured myself by walking into an agave spine, because, and I failed to immediately wash my wound because I was in the middle of a project. And that was a big mistake. By the next morning, I had an angry red cellulitis, and that was a pain in the neck to get rid of. So always make sure you wash a wound immediately after you get it. Stop what you're doing and wash it. 
Encouraging good hygiene will also help decrease the chances of developing cellulitis. Regular washing of the hands and just in general the body with soap and water, checking the hands and feet for signs of injury, these are important things to do. Consider treating dry skin with moisturizers to prevent cracking and peeling. That's important. Avoid applying these on open wounds, however. Keep group members' fingernails and toenails trimmed. That's not something I think that a lot of people don't think about, but it's important and it's part of your job description, medic. Uh, you want to watch for minor issues like athlete's foot that can lead to worse problems as well. All the drugs that I mentioned are available in veterinary equivalents, at least at present, online. If in a survival situation, by the way, you need to know antibiotics are going to be precious commodities and the family medic should dispense them only when absolutely necessary. The misuse of antibiotics, along with their excessive use in livestock, food-producing livestock, is part of the reason that we're seeing an epidemic of antibiotic resistance in this country. Now, having said that, I write about off-grid post-disaster scenarios. If you're medically responsible for a family or mutual assistance group in times of trouble, you'll be glad you stockpiled some of these antibiotics along with the bandages and antiseptics in your medical storage. Use them judiciously and you'll save lives. In normal times, however, seek standard and modern medical care from a qualified medical professional. And now a word from our sponsor. Men, are you tired of all those ladies chasing you down the street shouting their phone numbers? Is it tough to play your video games with all those women draping themselves over your shoulders? Well, before you join the monastery, why not pick up a copy of my new book, Odd Hobbies Guaranteed to Chase Away Women. Learn how to get into doll collecting, toy trains, soap whittling, and barehanded fishing. All things that will guarantee your peace and serenity. Old Dr. Bones tells you all you need to know if you want to die alone. Available only where pigs fly. You know, I think I'm going to stay on antibiotics for now. Several years ago, the Food and Drug Administration decided that access to veterinary antibiotics was too easy for the average citizen. They announced that there would be an increased stewardship, quote-unquote, of these drugs, which are lifesavers in survival settings, in the future. Thus began the implementation of Industry Guidance 213, also known as the Veterinary Feed Directive. This action was meant to discourage the use of veterinary antibiotics and hopefully decrease antibiotic resistance, a worthy goal. While this directive applied to food-producing livestock, there was no rule against access to antibiotics used in the pet trade, specifically those targeting aquarium fish or pet birds. Despite this, the writings on the wall and large distributors like Thomas Labs, maker of fish mocks, quietly ended their line of products. Other producers rose to fill the void, but the selection was less and availability more scarce. Recently, the FDA issued Industry Guidance 263, a ruling that all remaining over-the-counter medically important veterinary antibiotics should be transitioned to prescription only by June 2023. Product labels are now going to state, caution, federal law restricts this drug to use by or on the order of a licensed veterinarian. Now, what does this mean for the preparedness community? The original article I wrote on fish antibiotics about 15 years ago was meant to give the off-grid medic a way to keep long-term disaster survivors from succumbing to minor infections that might turn into life-threatening ones. That concern still exists today, and you might agree that we're no less likely to suffer a major catastrophic event today than we were then, maybe more now. Having antibiotics around would save lives if the medical infrastructure collapsed. Not having them? Well... Websites that address this issue state that there's going to be no more OTC, non-prescription, feed antibiotics available for use in food animal species. Unless you're in the habit of eating your pet goldfish, though, there doesn't seem to be a specific ban on currently available aquarium meds. Some sites do note, however, that the rules apply to companion animals as well. Most likely, you're not quite that close to the fish in your aquarium. 
The FDA has its reasons for wanting to control veterinary antibiotics. A few years back, 73% of total antibiotic use in the U.S. was in the food livestock industry. And this was not meant to treat infection, but given because animals fed antibiotics seem to mature faster and get to market quicker. Now it's going to be illegal to use them for that purpose. Producers now need to obtain authorization from a licensed veterinarian to use them for prevention, control, or treatment of a specifically identified disease. Nonetheless, limiting the preparedness community's ability to access veterinary antibiotics for stockpile purposes is going to mean lives lost in the event of a long-term disaster event. Even if a person has a relationship with a licensed veterinarian, how many vets will even see certain small animals, like maybe a pet rodent, an individual chicken, a parakeet? If they do, how many will see a sick guppy? Right? Right. The amount of veterinary antibiotics the preparedness community puts in their medical storage is not even a drop in the bucket compared to the total used. Having said that, I would guess the government will eventually get around to controlling every aspect of our lives, and this will be no different. If you're the family medic and are concerned about a scenario where infections may run rampant among your people, consider getting a supply while they're still available. I'm sounding like a broken record here, but I mean it. I'm not suggesting using any of your stockpiled antibiotics in normal times without the supervision of a qualified medical professional. What I'm talking about relates to the availability of medications like these for long-term off-grid survival settings. Hey, here's a segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of this award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. As we enter the winter season, concerns about infections like flu, COVID, and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, come to the forefront. In California, all three have come together to make the state a possible site for a triple epidemic this winter, or a tridemic. Some areas are experiencing an earlier flurry of flu cases than usual, and others a rebound of COVID-19, which may become a regular seasonal event from now on. But today, I want to talk about respiratory syncytial virus. RSV is another contagious virus emerging in a number of outbreaks throughout the state. While many have had personal experience with the flu or with COVID, respiratory syncytial virus is less well known to the general public, despite the fact that it's so contagious that almost all children get the infection by age 2. It usually presents as a mild cold, although it can be life-threatening in premature infants. This year, it's severe enough to have parents worried, with one or two pediatric fatalities so far. RSV is not just a children's virus, however. It can affect adults as well, and those over 65 can develop pneumonias requiring hospitalization. Orange County has recently declared a health emergency due to a surge of cases. In Los Angeles County, samples of phlegm and mucus are testing positive for RSV about 20% of the time. This is a five-year high, up from 6 to 7% a year ago, and 1% the three years previous to that. Almost 10% of L.A. County ER visits among children younger than five are associated with the virus. Like a cold virus, respiratory syncytial virus affects your nose, eyes, throat, and possibly lungs. It spreads, like many airborne viruses, when droplets from a cough or sneeze gets in somebody's eyes, nose, or mouth. Other ways to get RSV include direct contact, such as kissing the face of an infected child or touching a surface contaminated with the virus. There are various strains of RSV, making it unlikely you'll become immune. Some people even get it more than once in the same year. RSV symptoms usually begin four to six days after infection and include nasal congestion, coughing, sneezing, 
sore throat, earache, fever, muscle aches, and other symptoms. Infants may be difficult to diagnose, but you'll notice a lack of energy and a poor appetite in most. In severe cases, wheezing may be a symptom. Indeed, RSV is the most common cause of pneumonia in kids under the age of one. Fortunately, most infections with respiratory syncytial virus go away on their own after one or two weeks. There is no cure, vaccine, or even a specific treatment for RSV, however. The caregiver should perform measures that relieve the symptoms. One basic way to help is to encourage good hydration. Those who become dehydrated easily, like very young infants and the elderly, will have the worst outcomes. Manage fever and muscle aches with medicines like acetaminophen or ibuprofen, but avoid giving aspirin to children or really anyone under 20 due to the risk of a rare but serious disease known as Ray's syndrome. Symptoms that should raise the level of concern include shortness of breath, chest or stomach pain, vomiting, and dehydration. It's as hard to keep from catching an RSV infection as it is to avoid a cold. Following a strategy known as respiratory hygiene, however, can lower the risk. Consider covering your mouth and nose when you're coughing or sneezing. Having tissues or other barriers available at all times. If none is available, cough or sneeze into your elbow or upper arm. Keeping no-touch trash containers available for safe disposal of tissues and other materials. Washing your hands or using a hand sanitizer whenever you're touching your mouth or nose. Providing materials for hand washing in areas where infected persons may be housed. Having symptomatic patients wear masks and avoiding close contact with healthy individuals. And keeping infected persons away from high traffic areas in the home. The precautions I mentioned are good advice for any outbreak of respiratory infections, by the way, including RSV, flu, or COVID. Hopefully, RSV cases will peak soon. Even so, close observation of your children and elderly relatives is important to prevent undiagnosed cases from leading to bad outcomes. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'd like to talk for just a second about a guy who fell off a cruise ship recently and wound up spending at least like 15 hours in pretty cold water without dying. We were able to find this guy and rescue him. I think it's an absolute miracle. But I want to talk a little bit as a result about cold water safety when it comes to falling overboard or ending up in the water, in that especially water that's cold. We're heading into the season where pretty much water everywhere is going to be pretty cold. So this is something that's important to know. There are water features such as lakes and oceans, and these tend to vary in temperature based on latitude and depth, right? Even Caribbean sea bottoms near the equator can reach temperatures as low as 36 degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty amazing stuff. Luckily, humans rarely venture that deep. A rapid immersion in cold water, however, that's still pretty dangerous and can quickly become life-threatening if you're not prepared. So let's discuss what, what you can do to increase your chances of survival, none of which were probably done by this guy. If water temperatures remain above 70 degrees Fahrenheit, a victim can survive quite a while. I mean, once below 68 degrees or so, however, survival is unlikely beyond a certain time limit. Even less time exists before exhaustion leads to an inability to remain conscious and do anything meaningful to help yourself. To an extent, obviously, from the latest headlines on this guy, this varies according to the circumstance and from individual to individual. You could die of hyperthermia off a tropical coast if you're immersed long enough. Body size and build, fat content, clothing, flotation aids, and even psychological makeup may play a part. As a matter of fact, this guy may have been obese, which might have helped him float and insulated him and kept his body core warm. Well, 
Let's talk about how long you really can expect to survive at certain temperatures. If it's above 80 degrees, you might be able to survive floating around for an indefinite period of time. And it's interesting to, it would be interesting to know what the water temperature was in this circumstance with this guy that fell off the cruise ship. 70 to 80 degrees, usually pretty much you become exhausted or unconscious with between 3 to 12 hours and death occurs, well, it could as, as early as three hours, but it could be much, much longer than that. 60 to 70 degrees, two to seven hours for exhaustion, and two to 40 hours for death, 50 to 60 degrees, one to two hours before you become exhausted and unconscious, three to six hours before you die, 40 to 50 degrees, getting pretty cold here, 30 to 60 minutes before you become unconscious, one to three hours before you die, 32 to 40 degrees, well, 15 to 30 minutes before you can't help yourself anymore, and death occurs in 30 to 90 minutes only. And of course, in freezing water, Titanic version type water, less than 15 minutes before you can't help yourself anymore, you become exhausted and unconscious, and you die within 45 minutes. The ill effects of exposure to cold are called hypothermia. We've talked about that many times before. Hypothermia occurs when body temperature drops below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 35 degrees Celsius. When exposed to cold, the body's muscles shiver to produce heat. And this functions only to a point after which victims, well, may appear confused and uncoordinated. As the condition worsens, speech becomes slurred and the patient will become lethargic and uninterested in helping themselves. They may even fall asleep. This occurs due to the effect of cooling temperatures on the brain. The colder the body core gets, the slower the brain works. As hypothermia progresses, well, organs fail and the patient expires. Those suffering from general hypothermia must be removed from the cold and warmed immediately. If the victim must remain on the ground, you should always place a barrier underneath and cover with warm blankets. If the victim can't be moved to a warm place indoors, once they get out of the water, place warm, dry compresses in the neck, armpit, and groin regions. These are areas where major vessels come close to the body surface and can move warm temperatures to the body core more efficiently. Warm fluids may be given to those who are awake and alert. Awake and alert only. They could be dangerous to those who have altered mental status. Although controversial in some circumstances, a rescuer might actually spoon with the patient and cover with blankets to share body heat. And in this case, you might actually be recommended to remove your clothes to allow the body heat to resuscitate your victim. Now, how does the body lose heat in cold water? It loses heat to the environment whenever the ambient surrounding temperature is lower than 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Much lower temperatures cause heat to radiate away more quickly. And in water, it occurs... 25 times more rapidly than in air due to its increased denseness. As such, when the body's surface comes in direct sudden contact with cold water, it conducts heat from the body many times faster than cool air. Events that revolve a rapid immersion in cool water include capsizing boats, going overboard in a storm, or from a cruise ship, or even falls through the ice through winter hikes. All of these can lead to fatal consequences if the victim fails to act rapidly to mitigate the risk of drowning and hypothermia. If your boat sinks and you find yourself in cold water, well, you're going to need a strategy that's going to keep you alive until you're rescued. Failure to follow the advice I'm going to give you decreases the amount of time you have before the effects of hypothermia take hold. You should wear a life jacket. Whenever you're on a boat, wear a life jacket. Let me say that again. Whenever you're on a boat, wear a life jacket. A life jacket can help you stay alive longer by one, enabling you to float without using a lot of energy, and two, by providing some insulation. Jackets with built-in whistles or a beacon light are best as you can signal that you're in distress. 
Keep your clothes on. When you're in the water, do not remove your clothing. Button or zip up instead and cover your head if at all possible. The layer of water between your clothing and your body is slightly warmer and is going to help insulate you from the cold. Remove your clothing only after you're safely out of the water. Then do whatever you need to do to get dry and warm. If you can't get out of the water, try at least to partially have your body in the air rather than water. The smaller the percentage of your body exposed to cold, the less heat you lose. Climbing onto the hull of a capsized boat or holding onto a floating object, that's going to increase your chances of survival because you get a little bit of your body out of the water. You want to position your body, by the way, if you're in the water to lessen heat loss. There is actually a body position known as a heat escape lessening position, think H-E-L-P, to reduce heat loss while you wait for help to arrive. Just float and hold your knees to your chest. This will help protect your torso, the body core, from heat loss. You should also huddle together if you are in the water with a number of other people. If you fall into cold water with others, keep warm by facing each other in a tight circle, holding on to each other. And don't use up energy. That's very important. Unless you have a dry place to swim to, do not exhaust yourself swimming. That can be a recipe for a disaster. We're going to talk a little bit in future shows about falling through the ice and the strategies that can help people survive. Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast with Dr. Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.